All right. I'm uh, really happy to be here today. I've been looking forward to this for many months, actually, because I was scheduled to come in February, and uh, the Lord took my uh, father-in-law home, and so I needed to stay home to be with my wife and family. And so we rescheduled for this week, and then this, this Matthew shows up, and I thought I wasn't going to be able to come again, and I was beginning to figure, well, maybe the Lord just doesn't want me to come here, I don't know. But I talked with Malcolm, and he encouraged me, yeah, you should, you should come, and I was able to get another flight, and so, thank the Lord, I was able to arrive yesterday, and I am very, very happy to be here today. It's been five years. It doesn't seem that long ago, but I have uh, had just wonderful experiences with many of you at Camp Horizon and as well as here, and so it is a privilege, believe me, to, to be here today. We've remembered the Lord in the breaking of bread just a few minutes ago, and I wanted to ask you this question. Uh, do you think that it pleased the Lord? As we remembered the Lord Jesus, I mean, did he care? Was he happy about it? Did he not even pay any attention? Or uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think it pleased the Lord to remember him. Now, in that service, we remembered especially, although not only, his, his death for us, his shed blood and uh, bearing our sins in his body on the tree. But, you know, there are a lot of different ways to remember the Lord, even in the breaking of bread, though it focuses on his death and resurrection. There's a lot of ways to remember the Lord. I want to read a couple of verses that point this out. In Psalm 19, verse 14, it says this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. That could also be translated pleasing. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then at the end of Psalm 104, verse 34, it says, Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Now, those two verses I read have something in common. Besides just the words that we read about David wanting his thoughts, his meditations to be pleasing to the Lord. Those two verses follow passages that focus on creation as well as the creator himself. And so I would submit to you that another way that our thoughts can be pleasing to the Lord is to think about creation. Letting those thoughts then direct our mind and heart to the creator himself. Thinking about creation, amazingly enough, can also be a way to please the Lord. Now, that's encouraging to me because I think about creation a lot. And if those thoughts on creation can please the Lord, then then I'm really I'm really encouraged to do that. The thing is, focusing on creation is good in and of itself. But if we just stop right there, 
we miss the best part. Because creation should ultimately point us to the Creator. And when we think about the beauty, the grandeur, the complexity of creation, it reflects on Him. There's a verse in Hebrews that makes this point. Hebrews, <clears throat> excuse me, 3 3, I believe it is. says, the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So as magnificent as the Grand Canyon is, as magnificent as, as the Milky Way is, and as much as it might thrill your heart to look at those things, actually, what it can do is give us even a greater thrill because we know the person that made them. He has more honor than what he made. A marvelous thing about creation. But having said that, for the believer, for the one who knows the creator, what does the world do? The worldling who knows nothing of the Lord. Romans 1.25 gives us an ugly reminder. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, that is, in fact, the world that we live in. But isn't it wonderful to know that we can find sources of information that, in fact, when it talks about creation, when it meditates on creation, it gives God the glory. It gives the Creator the glory. And that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to look at a psalm this morning, Psalm 104. And in this psalm, we indeed see God being given the glory that He deserves in creation. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. We just sang how great thou art. And as we look at some other verses in this particular psalm, I think that the, the songwriter of how great thou art, at least for verses 1 and 2, had to have had Psalm 104 in mind because some of the things that we sang in verses 1 and 2 of that great hymn Seemed to me to come right out of Psalm 104. Verse 1. Oh Lord my God, thou art very great. This Psalm of David, as he thinks about creation, as he thinks about the works of the Lord, which actually the last verse of Psalm 103 sort of introduced Psalm 104. Let's read that. Psalm 103, the last verse says, Bless the Lord, all you works of his. In all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And David, who I think we should understand, wrote Psalm 104 as well, just flows into, let all the works of the Lord bless him and praise him. Then he starts listing all these marvelous works. And so he begins then Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Thou, my God, art very great. And one of the ways that we see the greatness of God is displayed in his creation. Now, 
I would submit that this Psalm 104 is one of the greatest creation passages in the Bible. Now, obviously, that's up for debate. That's up for differences of opinion. You know, you might say, well, yeah, wait a minute. What about Genesis chapter one? That's a pretty great creation passage. I would agree. (laughs) The thing is, Genesis chapter one and Psalm 104, though they both are about creation, have different emphases. These two passages are almost like parallel passages, but like the Gospels, having different emphases, different perspectives on the person of the Lord. These are two passages about creation with different emphases. And I would suggest that Psalm 104 is almost like a devotional reflection on Genesis chapter 1. Where Genesis chapter 1 talks about, we might say, the, uh, the manufacturing <laughs> Of creation, what God did, the chronology of what God did, even a little bit, although I wish there was a whole lot more in there about how he did it. Psalm 104 talks about what it means, especially about what it says about God. And so I'm going to read the first four verses of Psalm 104. We might think of this as a devotion on Genesis chapter 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. What we're going to see, not slavishly, not absolutely, but we're going to see sort of a movement starting at day one through the days of creation in this psalm. And what I see in these first four verses is a reference certainly to day one and uh, an allusion, we might say, to day two of creation. Days one and days two of creation. First of all, when it says in verse two, covering thyself with light as with a cloak. What did God do on day one? He created the heavens and the earth. And in verse three of Genesis chapter one, it says, and God said... Let there be light. And there was light. Just just like that. No flipping a switch. No linking up a wire to the power company. He just spoke the word and created light. And so then when we see here David describing the creator as covering thyself with light as with a cloak. We see over and over again in the Bible when there's a vision of God. He's powerfully glowing with light. Imagine he speaks light into existence. Imagine him taking light, this stuff that's filling the room and wrapping himself up in it. Have you ever seen a a Christmas tie? You know, it's about somebody's wearing a tie and they got little light bulbs and they're flashing green and red. Or even uh, I've seen somebody one time, they had a, a coat, a sports coat, and they had light bulbs on it. It was, it was hilarious. You know, it's, they're walking around and flashing. Boy, that really calls people's attention, doesn't it? 
It's a good way to show off. You got this flashing light coat. Well, imagine uh, no light bulbs flashing, but just the Lord being able to wrap himself in light that he created just with the word. It says something else here, though, that I don't think we think a whole lot about when we think about this creation. When it says stretching out heaven like a tent curtain, stretching out heaven. First of all, you know, we just figured this out. For sure, in 1929, what am I talking about? That the heavens were stretched, and in fact, they're still going. Our terminology is, our universe is expanding. But in the book of Job, and in the book of Isaiah, and in several places in the Psalms, as well as other places in God's Word, over and over again, the creation of the heavens is described as God stretching them out. Well, I guess we could insist. Well, you know, it doesn't say an expanding universe. Come on. Here in the Bible is terminology that until Hubble invented that telescope that proved to Einstein the universe is expanding, Albert. Because he didn't like that idea. Albert wanted the universe to be static. Therefore, it didn't expand. Therefore, when you go backwards, it didn't have a beginning. Therefore, there was no beginner. There was no creator. But you know when Hubble proved to Einstein that the universe is expanding with his big radio telescope? Einstein changed his attitude about that. And though he never came to know the Lord Jesus as his Savior, as best as we know. Isn't that sad? He was a Jew. It was his Messiah, man. But he did come to the perspective that there must be a creator if the universe had a beginning. And there's amazing comments when you read what Einstein said comments that he would not be welcome to say <laughs> at uh, places like Harvard or Berkeley. You know. yeah, I mean, after all, what's Einstein, though? <laughs> and he came to an understanding that there must be a fantastic creator. Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Stretch the universe. But this heaven that's described there There's more involved than just space that God filled on the fourth day, right? Fourth day, sun, moon, and stars. But that heaven was there. The the, uh, space-time continuum, I guess we could call it, there on, on day one. There's another aspect to the heavens that God created there on day one. Heaven in the Old Testament, that word, you notice that it's plural. Why is it plural? Because there's three different ways that uh, heaven can, what heavens can describe. Sky, where the birds fly and clouds float. Space, where the stars are. And then there's a supernatural heaven. Remember, Paul even described it as, I don't know if I went to that third heaven or not in a vision or if I actually went there. Third heaven. What's he talking about? The supernatural realm where the angels dwell. It's got no light. It's got no gravity. It's got no electricity. It's a supernatural place where the laws of nature apparently aren't really in effect. God created that too. The angelic beings that, this, that roam, that, that dwell in that heaven were created by God as well. I think we should understand that where, where in the world does the Bible tell us he did that? In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens, the supernatural realm. And so the angelic beings were there on that first day of creation 
when God then said, watch this, I'm paraphrasing, and he created the earth itself, the foundation of the earth. How do you know that, Ben? In Job chapter 38, verse 7, it says, God asks Job a question. Job, you think you know so much. You're so powerful and everything. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? On day one, when I put that earth in space. And he goes on to say, when the morning stars shouted for joy. And the morning stars sang. Excuse me. And the sons of God shouted for joy, talking about the angelic beings. You see, those magnificent, powerful beings were created by God as well. And we see that the psalmist goes on to talk about them. Those magnificent beings that God created serve the Creator. Beings that are so powerful and so magnificent that... Some of God's closest friends, might we say, they would see an angel and they'd fall on their face and start worshiping the angel. And the angel would say, stop that. I'm not God. That's how powerful these beings were, are. And so what do they do? They walk on the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. And how do we know that actually he's talking about angelic beings there? Because it isn't necessarily for sure clear. Well, because it's uh, interpreted for us in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 6 says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked earth in flesh, it says, And let all the angels of God worship him. If there's any question that the word of God presents the Lord Jesus Christ as divine, it's because a person doesn't want to accept it. The angels are told to worship Jesus Christ. And the angels of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So here we have a reference to God's control of light. Of God's power over control of the angelic realm. There's another and I think this is, this is a little bit of a stretch, but I think it's an allusion to it. Also, a reference to God's work on the second day of creation. What did God do on the second day of creation? When you read it, it's very vague. It's very difficult to understand. But it's God separating some water above from water below and putting something in the middle. I think the best way to understand that probably is he's talking about an atmosphere. So crucial for life on this planet. If we didn't have our atmosphere, this perfect little thin layer... To protect us and provide for us, there'd be no life on earth. When it says he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters to make the clouds his chariot. There's a reference to clouds. There's a reference to water uh, above the earth. And there's another reference that I think gives us even a clearer sense that he's talking about water in the atmosphere. Verse 13. We'll just jump down there really quick. It says he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. So here, I think, is a veiled reference not only to day one, but to day two, when he created this atmosphere and put that water up there that's so crucial for life on earth. Then we move on to the second stanza, verses five through nine. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. Thou didst cover it. Thou. 
Whitney was just talking about he makes the winds his messengers. Thou. You notice something? What did we say in verse one? Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor. What's David doing here? He's sort of bouncing back and forth. At one moment, he's talking to God. And the next stanza, he's talking about God. And now we're back to he's talking to God. Is David confused? No, brothers and sisters, I think this makes this point of meditating on creation and allowing our thoughts then to be drawn to the creator. This is a marvelous example of what meditation is all about. Looking around and thrilling in the beauty of creation. And then we just talk to God and say, oh, God, this is so great. Meditation is a wonderful thing. It's looking at things around us and then just talking to God. Sort of like when you're walking with a person and you point this out and you point that out and then you talk to that person. That's what meditation is. That's what prayer is. That's what worship is. You know, sometimes Christians back off a little bit from meditation. It sounds like it's yoga. It sounds like it's, uh, you know, some... No, meditation is a wonderful thing with our Lord and Savior. Walking with him, thinking about what he's done and thinking about him. So this is exactly what David is giving us. A marvelous example of true meditation. Bouncing back and forth. One moment talking about him, the next moment talking to him. He's not confused at all. Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which thou didst establish for them. Thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. I think what psalmist is talking about here is the third day of creation. Remember what God did on the third day of creation? The world is an ocean planet on the second day with a thin little atmosphere around it. And then he causes the land to come up out of the water. That's what he's talking about here. Amazing. The deep, that ocean planet of deep water now has land sticking up out of it. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke, they fled. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down. And this terminology, thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over. It's talking about shoreline where generally... (laughs) The ocean stays where it belongs, right? Although just recently, uh, a little bit more ocean came in. Just a little ways. Everybody gets all upset. It's a good thing God made that boundary. Job describes the same thing. In Job chapter 38, verse 8. Remember, this is God talking again, challenging Job. Job, you know, can you do this? Look what I did in creation. What does it say about me? Job 38.8, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment, garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far, you shall come, but no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Imagine that. God causes the land to appear and he sets in place this idea of, okay, the ocean stays here and here's the land. You know, that's a problem for evolution. 
when they say that our planet is, is billions of years old. Um, the tides, they keep eroding. The storms, they keep eroding the soil away and away and away. And that happens much more quickly than mountains coming up from earthquakes and tectonic plate movement and so forth. We shouldn't have any water. Excuse me, we shouldn't have any land on this planet if it's that old. It should be completely eroded away and we should just have an ocean planet. But now if it's just on the order of thousands of years old, there's no problem there. Interesting. God put a boundary for that ocean to stay where it belongs most of the time. So here we see references to days one, day two, day three. And then we come to what I would say a section that emphasizes really the reason why life is so abundant on the earth. Why is that? Because the earth is covered with water. Not the salt water of the oceans, but there's water everywhere. You know, you know what NASA has become? Well, I got a blank look. NASA. You know NASA. They're, they're supposed to be, you know, telescopes and spaceships out in space, right? I would, I, in my mind, I look at what NASA publishes and what NASA is doing. NASA has become a water exploration company. All they're interested in is trying to find some water on a planet somewhere out in Andromeda or somewhere. Have you noticed that? You look, anytime anything is published by NASA, within the first sentence or two, they're going to be talking about water. Why? Well, maybe if we can find water on Mars, or maybe if we can find water on Jupiter, or maybe if we can find water on some planet that's in the Goldilocks zone on a star system way out there somewhere, well, then maybe there can be some life there. Because we all understand that absolutely you cannot have life if you don't have water. But tonight, let me put a little plug for what we're going to be considering tonight. It takes a lot more than just water. Um, you know, you just don't take water. And, and I noticed that we had some tea back here and the brother got the hot water and he put some tea in there. Hmm. Uh, hot tea. It takes a little more than that. Some water and some dirt to uh, swirl it around and outcrawl some bugs. A little bit more. And so we're going to be talking about uh, chemical basis for life. Uh, the, the name of the presentation is Evolution, Creation, and Intelligent Design. What's the difference? Different explanations for how life could uh, be here. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, it'll be a little more technical. But I'll try to keep it so that we all can get something out of it. Please come tonight at, uh, at 6 o'clock. I'm worried that nobody's going to be here when we start. Everybody's going to show up at 7. I'll be just about done at 7, gang. It's at 6 o'clock. I'll be here at 6 o'clock. Okay. All right. But here's uh, this next section, which basically David, in many different ways, is, is talking about why there is just this abundance of life available on earth. And it's because of the abundance of water. What a blessing we have because of... The water on this planet. Something that the uh, evolutionary scientists know is desperately needed and are looking for wherever they can.
Let's read these verses. We're not going to spend a lot of time in depth on them, but just I'm trying to set the context. He's talking about why there's an abundance of life. He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food, which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees. We could look at all kinds of things in these verses, but uh, do note in verse 12 it says beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. There's that same word that uh, we read in verse two. But here the word heavens means sky. So how do you know what the word heaven means? The context is going to determine whether it's sky, space or the supernatural throne of God. Any bird lovers in here? If you're a bird lover, you need to be proud of it, man. It's a, it's a you know, David loved to listen to the birds. You don't even have to see them. That's one of the really cool creations of God. The birds have all these magnificent sounds that they make. Sometimes, you know, somebody will see a bird and they go, oh, look at the bird. And, and uh, I'll ask him what it is. I don't know. It's a bird. You know. <laughs> Oh, man, if you if you let me recommend if you if you enjoy nature and you want to expand your appreciation of it, start learning the different kinds of birds and even their songs, because you don't have to see the bird. You can just know, wow, that's a red belly woodpecker over in there. I can't see him. Oh, that's a blue jay. I don't know where he is, but I, I mean, this is part of the beauty and the diversity of God's creation. I mean, just imagine if it was all just crows. And, you know, it's funny, but according to the theory of evolution, the strongest survive, survival of the fittest, this magnificent diversity of creatures that way we've got, that shouldn't be there. With all the time that they're talking about has been involved in natural selection to be taking place, there shouldn't be anything but crows. Frankly, there shouldn't be anything but man. I mean... Nature just just eats nature up. I mean, that's where this observation of natural selection came from. It's accurate. But there's a real problem when you try to extrapolate it all the way back to millions and billions of years. Then you go, wait a minute, this kind of stuff shouldn't be here now. There shouldn't be anything but grasshoppers or nothing left but E. coli. I mean, but the diversity of life that God created, one, he created it in such a way that it would survive, but surely it couldn't last the period of time that the evolutionary theory requires it to have been here. What beauty in the plants and animals, and especially birds. David appreciated them. I'm sure as he was out there with the sheep, he could hear different ones chirping and singing. The beauty of their songs. Oh, I'm going to spend too much time on birds. You can tell I really love them. And I recommend them that you get to learn about them. They're wonderful things. Not to mention how pretty they are. And guys, 
the male birds tend to be the gussied up ones. <laughs> and the women, the female birds are the ones. They're just, you know, they're just plain. <laughs> anyway, let's keep reading. Verse 18. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. You, you can't go anywhere without finding life. Even on the tops of those mountains, you've got these goats standing on a little rock. It's funny. Some of this stuff, when you think about these creatures, they're hilarious. You lift up a rock and there's a badger under it. My goodness, it's amazing how life is made in such a way that it just can live anywhere. Then we come to day four. Now, like I said, he doesn't, David doesn't slavishly go day one, day two, three, four, five, because he's already talking about creatures that were created on day six, you know, mountain goats and so forth. But we do get to the fourth day of creation, verse 19. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. Thou dost appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. Uh, we, we might see, say, boy, that's a, that's a convenient coincidence there. That, uh, you know, the lions are now looking for food in the middle of the day when the guy's out there laboring. I mean, you know, your face is down in the dirt, you're working. You are a prime target for a lion if that's the time of day he eats. But no, you sort of divide it up here. That's the way God did it. Now, I know that there is some exception here and there, but this division of labor uh, is amazing that God did it this way. With all those thoughts, David then says, verse 24, Oh, Lord. He looks up again now. He goes, Oh, Lord, how many are thy works in wisdom thou hast made them all. I mean, imagine the thought process of the Creator as He planned it all out from the way the earth would be protected by Jupiter and the sun so we wouldn't get hammered by asteroids all the time. You think about that? If it wasn't for Jupiter out there, uh, we'd look like the moon. I mean, He just put everything in just the perfect places, whether it's spatially or the atoms that fit just right to make proteins and DNA so that enzymes work. And after this service, we can go eat our lunch and get food, not only that will give us energy, but taste really good. I hope. I don't know where I'm going for lunch. I trust we're not going to McDonald's. So, David is just thinking about all these things that God did. And he just says... How many are thy works? And wisdom, you've made them all. He's just blown away by his creator. Oh, Lord, my God, thou art very great. Do you get excited about God? I don't know about you, but when I think about creation, maybe you can sort of tell a little bit. This isn't an act. When I think about creation, I just get excited about God. O Lord, how many are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. Don't forget that, brothers and sisters. This is the Lord's. He made it. He made you. And that's something that we all understand. We exercise that prerogative all the time. If I made it, it's mine. I can do with it what I will. 
Verse 25, there is the sea, great and broad. He's been focusing on the earth. Then his thoughts go to the sea as well. There is the earth, excuse me, there is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both great and small. I didn't know that David was able to go scuba diving and look down in the depths of the oceans and see these swarms of fish. You know, you've seen, uh, how many of you have snorkeled or scuba dived and seen that yourself? You know, how could, I don't think this psalm writer knew that, could have known that, but somehow he did. I would submit that at least in part it's because the creator told him to use these particular kinds of words in which are swarms without numbers, animals both great and small. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which thou hast formed to sport in it. Leviathan, this magnificent creature that Job uses a whole chapter to describe. A fire-breathing dragon. How silly. You look at what God has created. I don't find a big problem with God creating a fire-breathing dragon either. I mean, it's a matter of mixing chemicals, putting them together, squirting them out, hit the oxygen. That's what a flamethrower does, right? I don't think that that's so silly. And on top of that, I would submit that Leviathan is a type of Satan. I think Leviathan was truly a creature that God created. But the things that we learn about Leviathan in Job chapter 41, and then the things that we learn about Satan himself throughout the Bible, what a type of Satan this fire-breathing dragon is. Powerful, horrific creature. Then, if you ever wanted a passage that dismisses deism, the idea that God just created all this and then he left it to go on its own, these verses indicate to us that God is intimately involved with his creation. Verse 27, they all wait for thee to give them their food in due season. Thou dost give to them, they gather it up. Thou dost open thy hand, they are satisfied with good. Thou dost hide thy face, they are dismayed. Thou dost take away their spirit. That can be translated breath, and this shouldn't even be controversial. Animals do not have supernatural, eternal spirits. This is one of those words, again, that the context determines what it means. It's breath. God takes away their their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou dost send forth thy spirit, they are created. And thou dost renew the face of the ground. God is intimately involved in keeping this planet going until he chooses to bring an end to it. And this whole radical environmentalism that says, oh, we're in control. We're the reasons why uh, global change in the weather is happening. God is the one who's in control. Amen. And uh, I am by no means suggesting that we not be good stewards of this planet. But the idea that we can affect the weather, that we can control the weather, and that it's not biblical. Then David says in verse 31, with all these thoughts in mind, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. Interesting thought. Let the Lord be glad in his works. David's been describing all these works of his hands. Great things. But when you think about God speaking and there's plants, speaking and there's light, 
How does that compare with his work on Calvary? To save us. What cost God more? What took greater effort? I think we all would agree it took God much greater effort on Calvary. The work of salvation than the work of creation, right? And when you compare something that was easy to do versus something that you labored over for a long period of time that cost you all kinds of time and money and effort, what's more special to you when the work is accomplished? What it took you years to accomplish? Or a cake that you made out of a box? Obviously, we take greater pleasure and joy in those things that cost us something that took great effort. And I would submit to you that when it says here, let the Lord be glad in his works. Oh, he can be glad. He can take pleasure in the things that he created with his fingers. But he takes such greater joy in you, his greatest work. If indeed you love and obey him. To think That we can please the almighty creator, the one who spoke light into existence, the one who spoke and the molecules rearrange themselves and there's a palm tree, an orange tree, whatever. You, his greatest work, he takes pleasure in. And we can give him grief too, can't we? I mean, the word says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is what we're talking about when we say we have a personal relationship with God. Our meditation, our thoughts, our behaviors towards Him, our reactions to Him, affect Him. (laughs) What a privilege that you have a personal relationship, I hope, with this one that we are thinking about and talking to this morning. Is the Lord glad in you? Let the Lord be glad in His works. Finally, then, in verse 34, let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. What a cool relationship. The Lord can take pleasure in us. We take pleasure in him. This, in my mind, would be the place to stop. There's one more verse. I'm sorry, I'm going a little past 1215. Just give me two more minutes here. you, You would think that verse 34 is the end of the psalm, right? Let me read it again. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Amen. No, there's one more verse. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Doesn't that almost seem like a blind side of where in the world did this come from? What, what is David doing? And then he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. You know, that's the first Hallelujah. In the Bible? How many of you knew that? This is the first hallelujah in the Bible. And then there are many hallelujahs from here on in the book of Psalms. There are very few hallelujahs in the Old and the New Testament. Where are we going? Well, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 19. And I think it's going to make a little sense of David, you know, Changing from, I'll be glad in the Lord to let sinners be consumed from the earth. In Revelation chapter 19, we have what is called the fourfold hallelujah. 
I'm not going to read this whole thing. But what you should understand here in Revelation chapter 19 is judgment is being described. Horrific judgment of earth in Revelation 19. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And this goes on all the way through verse 6, where there's judgment after judgment being pronounced. And then, hallelujah! Why? Because sin has corrupted this earth. And when David could look around and enjoy the beauty of it, still he understood how messed up it actually was compared to what God had intended. As beautiful as we see this world, we know how messed up it is because of sin. And what David is looking forward to is the day that sin is judged and removed. Are you looking forward to that day? I can't imagine what the planet is going to look like. I just... As beautiful as it is, what is it going to be like? And David and the heart of the righteous are looking forward to that day. Not because on those bad people, but because we want things to be put right. Boy, then will God be taking pleasure in his works. Are you his greatest work? Yeah, you are. Can you give pleasure to God? Yes, you can. This one who we didn't read, he touches the mountains and they burst open like volcanoes. The one who spoke light into existence. The one who died on Calvary to make that relationship that we have with him possible. Praise him. Bless him. Hallelujah.